0: This episode of the Birdshot Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. On this episode of the show, we talk a little grouse, talk a little shotguns, and even a little taxidermy. With host of the Gun Room Podcast, Joel Pincala. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 173. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We've got a great show coming up for you, as always, with our guest, Joel Pancala, host of the Gunroom Podcast. We're going to get to that in just a moment, but I've got a few updates for you all. First, on this lovely spring day, I can finally say that, up here in Minnesota, the sun is shining, the thermometer has cracked 50 degrees, and I cannot visibly see From the windows of the Birdshot Podcast studios, any snow at all? I know there's still some piles out there somewhere, but I can't see it. So things are looking up. Thank you to the Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. This being our first episode in May, I've got an April winner to announce of the Patreon giveaway. Scott E. from Minnesota was our April Patreon giveaway winner. He has opted to take the Final Rise field gloves, luckily for Scott He was a size medium, so those gloves will be on the way to him very soon. And that means this month, Up for Grabs will be an Onyx Elite subscription card. Access to Onyx in all 50 states and all of the additional Elite member benefits, which are extensive. If you haven't looked at those and you are an Onyx Elite subscriber, you definitely want to check those out. So thanks to Scott and everybody else that is a Patreon patron of the Birdshot Podcast. I really appreciate that. Starting at five bucks a month, you can sign up. We'll send you some Birdshot Podcast canned coolers and stickers. You'll be eligible for all Patreon giveaways. And you can sign up at slash Patreon. And you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash Birdshot. All right, I'm going to try to be fairly brief on this intro. I am. Supposed to be on my way to Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Got some Upland Gun Company fittings there this week. I was there yesterday, back and forth a little bit this week, trying to stay caught up on the home front, as well as the podcast and Upland Gun Company. We've got Del Whitman doing gun fittings out at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp this week. I will be there later this evening. Before we set up our interview today, I did want to mention one other thing. It's a bit of a random mention on the Birdshot podcast, but if you've been listening long enough, you may know that I am a hockey fan. And earlier this week, the Stanley Cup playoffs kicked off, and I am officially, as of about November this year, back on the Minnesota Wild bandwagon. I must admit, I feel a little guilty. I kind of checked out on the team for the last couple of years. I just kind of grew tired of the same old Minnesota Wild. They were always just good enough to sneak into the playoffs, but never really do anything, and they never totally bottomed out, which is how a lot of teams really reload and stack up the roster with some high draft picks and whatnot. But this year's squad is a darn good one, and they caught my attention. So I'm definitely on that bandwagon. And anyways, friend of the Birdshot podcast, host of the Upland Rookie podcast, Will Larson, is a hockey fan as well. I knew that. and He's out in Colorado. Naturally, he is an Avalanche fan, which you want to talk about good hockey clubs. That is one for sure. So we had the bright idea to make a little friendly wager between the Birdshot podcast and the Upland Rookie podcast. Whoseever team goes further into the playoffs will be $100 richer. a hundred dollars richer. Little friendly wager between Will and I. After each team had played game one, I was I had the check written and in the envelope, about ready to send it to Will. But fortunately, I did not yet seal the envelope, and my beloved Minnesota Wild found their game last night in game two, and my hopes and dreams are alive once again. So I know it's totally random, but little Stanley Cup playoff update for you on the Birdshot Podcast. Any other hockey fans out there, send me a message. Tell me who you got. Tell me who you think is going to win the wager between the Birdshot Podcast and the Upland Rookie Podcast. And we might check in with our buddy Will Larson on an upcoming episode. Email me, nick at birdshotpodcast.com. All right, that's enough. Let's get into today's episode. This is a two-part conversation with former guest of the show and now host of the Gun Room Podcast, Joel Pincala. He was previously on the podcast in episode number 86. Go back and check that one out if you're interested. But more importantly, if you enjoy my conversation today with Joel and are intrigued to hear the second part of our conversation, you're going to want to go over to the Gun Room podcast for part two of the conversation, which Joel will be putting out tomorrow. should be available either right as you're done listening to this or not long after. So we'll talk a little bit more about what the Gun Room Podcast is in our conversation with Joel today. Joel will tell you all about it and definitely worth checking out if you're a bit of a gun nut like Joel and myself. You can find Joel and his work at the Gun Room Podcast website, Facebook, YouTube channel. we talk about that a little bit. It's all there search for The Gun Room Podcast. I'll put links in the show notes. And with that said, I think we will jump right into it and welcome into the conversation and on to the Birdshot Podcast of The Gun Room Podcast, Joel Pancala. Welcome back to The Birdshot Podcast, Joel. How you doing, man? I'm uh, doing very well. Doing very well. It's uh, been
1: a great spring so far. A lot of exciting things going on with, um, with a variety of stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's good to be back though. Thanks for thanks for having me on again. I appreciate
0: it. You're, I don't know, man. Leading off with a great spring, talking to a guy that has not had a spring over here in, in Minnesota. <laughs> uh, how has it been, great man? Uh, so well. F- I mean, first
1: off, this is the first spring that I actively. So I, I was in my backyard. I mean, it's semi-active. I was in my backyard pruning my apple trees and I heard, um, I heard a grouse drumming in my backyard in nice. New Jersey. And I said, oh boy, that is an opportunity that I cannot pass up. And, um, I kind of knew from where the direction that I heard the drumming was. And I just got this idea that I was going to go down in the woods and find out where he was and walked some hedgerows and checked out some areas that I had flushed grouse or had seen grouse before and happened upon a log. And I was like, that's got, that has to be absolutely has to be. I walked over there. There's grouse poop on the log. So I set up a trail camera and got some really nice uh, photos of a beautiful red phase, male grouse drumming in New Jersey, in my backyard, which is, that's a sentence that I never thought I'd say.
0: Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about sort of like put that into context as to how rare that might be. But I have to say, I saw the pictures and is it kind of a funny thing about drumming logs? Like, like I'm sure there's, there's some real logical things like they like to be elevated, but like there, when you see a log in a given oh, spot, you know, you're like, that is the drumming log, you know, like they're choosy and they choose like the premier location, whatever. Do you know what kind of tree that was? I, I actually, I don't know what, off the top of my head, what kind of tree it was, okay. but I
1: do know the exact scenario for this log, which is pretty unique. It's actually a tree that had fallen and then regrown, you know, about, so it left about say eight or 10 feet of the log low to the ground. And then it actually regrew at an angle. Really, And so the tree is, you know, there's quite a bit of, um, log on the ground, but then it's actually a, still a tree and the, it's a unique area. It's a wet seepy hillside, Um, for us, it's a lot of invasive, so it's a lot of autumn olives mixed in, but it still has really solid, um, like crab apple and, uh, some native, like some native species that are, that are there. And then some of the, some mix, but really good habitat, but it's an opening and it's just, you come across this opening and it's the size it's probably, I don't know, 50 by 50. And this tree is kind of in the center of this opening and there's not as much understory. It's a moss covered log. It is. I mean, you can see it from a mile off too. And I think that's part of it is that it's just obvious as you're walking. It's right on the tree was an old, an old hedgerow tree, right? Yeah. So there's a rock wall and the tree uh, was grew out of the rock wall, must've been toppled by a storm at some point. So, f- so the base of the tree actually is still in the rock wall. Wow. And the, 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 <laughs> the log runs out into the old field that used to be there, which actually I talked to the the farmer that still haze the. So this is on the bo- uh, gradual slope on the bottom side of a hill. I talked to the farmer that haze makes hay on the top of the, the field. And he said in his lifetime he used to make hay all the way to the hedgerow that this tree is growing
0: down, down that hillside
1: yeah so he's like oh yeah we we used to hay all the way down that hillside right to the hedgerow and i was like oh that's really ironic because you couldn't drive anything down there right, right. now um yeah but super cool to get some photos of a grouse drumming in new jersey because um you know it's not this way in other places but new jersey Early successional habitat in New Jersey, if you look at the land use data, like the cover data that is available, it is as rare or more rare in terms of percentage of cover type mm. than, than uncut forests, than old growth forests. So there is more old growth, uncut forest in New Jersey, which was completely deforested, right. like at the turn of the century, there's more old growth than there is early successional habitat right now. And I mean, obviously organizations like Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society, um, Audubon with their, the um, Goldenwing Warbler projects. And actually now there's a lot of private landowners, especially in in my area right now that are working on logging projects in association with those organizations, trying to change that a little bit and trying to make a little bit more of that early successional habitat. But boy, oh boy, when you're talking about comparing it to old growth, it's like you know, what, what are we doing wrong?
0: Yeah, here? It would seem that habitat regeneration has come to a screeching grinding halt there basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we've had, uh, we've talked about it before, but yeah, you know, projects that have been on, ongoing with the state, the state has tried, you know, ad nauseum to get a project going, to get some cuts going, to try to increase biodiversity, to try to increase habitat diversity, try to increase the varied and mixed habitat that most animals prefer. And it's just been shut down by <laughs> affectionately New Jersey cat ladies you know, th- <laughs> who, who don't want to have a tree cut down.
0: Uh, so yeah, it's tough, tough. Absolutely. Well, that, that drumming log was, it is definitely, it's quite a stage and, and yeah. that really is what, what the drumming log is. Is it a huge log? I mean, it looks like it in the picture.
1: Um, yeah, it's significant. Yeah, it's probably, you know, 18 inches. It gives that grouse a good, a good spot off the ground. Yeah. Um, you know, for his, out, you know, knowing that grouse don't really like to get their feet too wet. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's in a really wet spot, but right. it gives him a, a great spot to be. Um, it's really funny too. I have hundreds of pictures, right. Cause mm-hmm. he gets there. The best part about it is I didn't even realize this. He gets there in the dark. He's there at 5:30 in the morning yep. on this log in the dark black. I have black and white, like you know, the camera's still in black and white mode and he kind of just moves left and right, like back and, you know, left and right in the screen and he's on the log. He doesn't really... And the other thing is I got lucky. I put the camera on one side of the log and I have all... He doesn't turn around ever. He's, he's just, never he's drumming. Like
0: looking right at the camera. <laughs> he's,
1: he's always facing one direction and I don't know if maybe someone can send me a message or, or let me know about this, but he, literally I have hundreds of pictures of him. He's never facing the other way.
0: That's pretty interesting. He's actually, always yeah. facing one way. I wonder if there's, um, he knows something about where he anticipates the other birds to come. Cause I, I have, I too have had trail cameras on drumming logs and made some of those same observations that prior to doing that, I didn't, I just didn't think like, Oh, he's going to be on here drumming every five minutes all through the night. But I had that, we had that same realization yeah. Uh, really interesting. It's especially when they're, you know, when it's peak drumming time, I mean, they don't, they don't spend much time doing anything else. <laughs> Seems yeah. like.
1: Yeah. It's there. He's pretty focused. I mean, it, it's a little different here. Cause like I said, he's, he's not going all through the night, but he is definitely there in the morning. Yeah. He drums for a certain amount of time. And then he just hops. I mean, I have pictures of him hopping off the log oh, yeah. and that's it for the day. And then it's the next day at five 30. <laughs> so he, yeah. Um, and we, I have heard him, uh, you know, I was the first time I set the camera, I heard him drumming down, down the hedgerow okay. and it's, um, really obviously the, the drumming sound is super hard to like actually pin down yes. when you're yep. in some thick cover and you're trying to listen and trying to decide what direction it's coming from. It's, it can be difficult to pin down, but, um, he's got more than
0: one location. It's just that this is his am early am spot (laughs) i love it yeah the simple joys of of trail camp i mean that is that's neat that's like you know that's like your backyard wildlife observation super cool yeah but yeah i just did a i did a podcast yesterday with my friend levi it's not out yet but we were talking about the same thing about how the sort of low frequency of the grouse drumming it's odd in that a lot of things can influence where you think you hear it and you, know, you could be a hundred yards away and hear it. And then you move 80 yards and you're li- literally 80 yards closer, but it doesn't sound all that different. You know, you kind of just like, it's, it's almost like chameleon-like in its sound. Then all of a sudden there's the bird and then you see it. So is that how you, did you walk in and find the bird? That's how you, or no, you said you found the log. You just kind of. Yeah. I, ha-
1: I have yet to. And you saw the I droppings. Have yet, That's right. Yeah. I've yet to be there when he's been on the log. I, I, you know, not for nothing. I, I also am trying not to be down in there when sure. I think he's going to yep. be on the log. Um, but I did have to, I, I reset the camera <laughs> full disclosure. I went down and pulled the, pulled the card obviously to get yeah. the pictures out, but I wanted to reset the camera for video. Cause I was like, I obviously have a perfect opportunity to try to get some video footage Yeah. and that, that the, I it's just, I mean, it's nothing fancy. It's just a stealth camp, but it's taking some pretty good pictures, yep. I think. Cause it's so, I mean, I'm a, Three feet, four feet maybe from yeah. where the bird is standing. Yeah. So the pictures are, um, top notch just cause it's so close and he's, you know, clearly willing to be a good subject for the photographer. Yeah.
0: That is one thing that I have yet to do, which is identify a drumming log and then like go back at sunrise to obviously witness it myself, which I think would be mm-hmm. cool. I have walked up on a grouse drumming before, so I have seen it, but yeah, I'd like to sort of do that one morning and walk in and then, and then take a a nicer camera, you know, and get some really, I know Matt, yeah. Matt Soberg used to do that. And he would get some really, really cool images of grouse drumming and stuff, but yeah.
1: Yeah. It's on, it's on my list. I, I definitely would like to get, you know, creep in there at five in the morning and yeah. set up and then wait for him to come at five thirty just to, just to see it. Cause it's a spectacle. I mean, it's why we love the birds. I mean, yeah. They're they're ridiculous. It's, you know, he, there he is getting up on a log and just beating his heart out. Just, <laughs> just for, just for funsies. And yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's a show that he's got um, some,
0: he's got some pretty strong motivators to do so. <laughs> yeah. Well, a few thousand years, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That is, uh, that's, uh, that's one of the highlights of spring for sure. I, I don't yet think I have heard drumming. I really haven't been we've just been doing our exercise runs, which there are some grouse in, in those woods we've, which we get into from time to time, but mm-hmm. I haven't heard any drumming yet, but I intend to be out turkey hunting next weekend, about a week yeah. from today. And I'm very confident I'll be hearing a lot of drumming at that point. But are you a turkey? Yeah. Are you a turkey hunter? Are you doing that? Is that part of your spring routine? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I definitely, um, I have, so New Jersey is a little bit different than other States. And I, I came to realize this. I was at a, uh, we have a, Federation of Sportsmen's clubs that helps advise our basically the people who make the rules for hunting in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I was at a local meeting and, um, one of the, uh, NWTF biologists was there, which was kind of nice because he could explain different, you know, state to state, Bob Erickson. And it was great because he could explain like permitting and different things state to state. But what I didn't realize is, um, New Jersey does allow you to purchase permits for different, weeks. So it's our season is divided into five 5-day five weeks, so Monday to Friday. And then there's also Saturdays. So you can buy a permit and it's f- I think five Saturdays. And so there's a permit for each Saturday and mm-hmm. then there's a permit for each week Monday to Friday for the first 3 weeks and then a permit for the last 2 weeks of the season. And you can get as many permits as you want and each one is one bird limit. So if you buy a permit, you get a bird for that week, that zone. And the states divided into zones and everything. Long-winded way of saying that yes, I will be turkey hunting, and I have the zone that is my backyard. So <laughs> That's I'll be out cool. there. Yeah, I'll be out there running around. To um, I've got a couple little pieces of property that I have access to um, that occasionally the birds don't always roost in the same spots, but occasionally they're roosting there. So um, you know, little small compared to a turkey's air like the amount of ground a turkey Mm -hmm. will cover in a day you know 30 acres is not a lot sure when you talk about how far a turkey could go in a day potentially um so i've got some little spots that i can try to catch them when they're um they're roosting but i'll be out saturdays and we'll see i've got some other buddies who um you know who i usually we go out together and i call for them and stuff like that but um it's a good respite you know a good like breakup because i'm in the midst of uh you know, you said spring we're in, we're in spring trout season here too. So I'm fly fishing and you know, a lot of stock fish and you know, all that running around, just catching slime darts for fun.
0: Cool. Yeah. I I like how you can basically, you could be a weekend warrior and get the all five Saturday permit, or you could be a guy that maybe works from home and gets the, (laughs) during during (laughs) the week permit, (laughs) go back. (laughs) Yeah. But, but as you were saying, so obviously Turkey population is relatively healthy there. You could, literally buy a tag for each one of those weeks and the Saturday one and the last two weeks. So you could shoot like five or six turkeys or something.
1: So, I mean, it's the same and, and, you know, it's the same for turkeys and deer and a lot of species that do really well with the habitat structure that we have right. in the state, turkeys, deer and bear. You could, the, the limiting factor is not the number of people who want to go hunt, um, so like we have as hunters can get out, they can hunt. There's people who want to hunt can get permits. It's access to land available to hunt. Uh, um, it isn't, has nothing to do with, you know, they, they had an unlimited at one point it was unlimited and then they changed it to nine, nine deer <laughs> for some. I don't know why they made nine a number. It's just silly because I'll tell you why, that.
0: cause that's enough.
1: <laughs> well, nine but, is but, enough. The, but the reality is, I mean, you could, the number of guys that kill nine deer, it's it's you could probably count it on one hand and then because access is the limiting factor in new jersey guys that kill nine deer that's great there's thousands and thousands of deer in places that you can't access and those deer will just spill over you know it's it's not you could take every deer off the landscape in the areas where you can hunt and so many deer will spill over sure um when i was when i was at school we we did a half a semester on on bears so we did a half a semester on grasslands birds and half a semester on uh black bears and it was on management it was a conservation management class when i was at Rutgers. and um the numbers that if you look at from a biological perspective if you took every bear off the landscape in new jersey all roughly 3000 that they claim that we have mm. um within 3 to 5 years the population would be back to 3000 wow and that's because bears will move from pennsylvania and new york into new jersey so fast and repopulate the area so fast that in a few years you'd have as many bears as you have right now so the idea that, you know, again, going back to management versus, you know, conservation and management mm-hmm. versus the other side in our state, you know, it, it really boils down to, um, human wildlife interactions. Yeah. It has nothing to do with hunting for science or bi- the biology of it. Um, it, it all has to do with the politics
0: and the, <laughs> and the, the people side of it. Yeah. So, yeah. You got but- high, high densities of animals that, do well in those sort of urban environments, you deer, bet. deer, turkey, yeah. bear, and you got geese, Canada dogs. geese are yeah, another yeah. problem. Yeah. You know,
1: it's, it's, and it's, you know, it's, which is those populations, you know, you have, we have early and late goose seasons where you can hunt, you know, I, I think the early season is unplugged guns, electronic collars, 15 bird limits. I mean, yeah. you know, it, they're, they're doing what they can to try to mitigate, but you know, it, it's, it's an access, access thing. Yeah. That's the big The big issue. Yeah.
0: A lot of people out East as well. Yeah. Yep. So, Well, that's cool. Yeah. So turkey hunting, you think you will, like, do you have turkeys in your, in your, like, how big is the piece of woods behind you? Uh, uh, well, so
1: the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area, which is what my property abuts is 70,000 acres. Oh, wow. Very cool. Split, split between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So the river's obviously in between, um, it's not an even split, but pretty close you know there's a you know say 30 some thousand on each side give or take um that forms that recreation area and um yeah i can walk basically walk out the back and have access to a huge piece of ground and it's there's a lot going on in that ground so i mean obviously turkey hunting and bird hunting and all the rest but there's agriculture going on along the river um there's a number of fields that are kept up by farmers on both PA and New Jersey that farm, you know, soy and corn, cash crops, the regular stuff that you would expect that they farm. So they're, they're doing that. Um, But then it's also used by a ton of other people for anything you can think of. Sure. If you, if you could think of an outdoor activity, you can do it on the national recreation area and you can do it for free. You basically, there's no cost to, to hike, bird, kayak, canoe, you know, take pictures and walk and see the old houses that are there. And I mean, there's just, it's just, there for, yeah. for the taking so it's it's a really cool spot to be especially in the northeast especially in new jersey
0: where i am you know to have it right out the back door is is super unique yeah that's that's gotta be awesome i mean access to public land obviously huge factor now i think we did talk about this but rough grouse season in new jersey doesn't exist right
1: yeah it's how, gone. how
0: long ago was that again
1: uh, we're, it's a couple years now. Okay, I'd say it's either two or three. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, okay, two or so three years ago, recent, um, but it was history. Yeah, recent history. They, you know, the season it, we had a limit of three. They brought the limit down to two, and then you know, uh, and I mean for for appropriate reason, the the habitat is disappearing, right. and there's not been much much work to done. You know, much work done to change that, and the numbers are you know, the numbers are declining. The fact that I have one behind my house is pretty ridiculous just yeah. in and of itself, yep. but you know, there are still grouse and they, uh, there's some biologists for the state that are do drumming surveys every year to keep track. I mean, fish and wildlife still does what they can, right. They're, they're still out there doing breeding, breeding pair surveys and habitat sure. surveys and all that kind of stuff. But these days it's more of just a monitoring effort, you know, just so they can ad- advise as best they can. But again, it's policy, not, Science. Right,
0: yeah, and with it being again, with it being so recent, it's not like you just i mean it's almost human nature, you don't just erase the <laughs> grouse from yeah. your thoughts and minds, and but yeah, yeah, just I don't know, it's interesting for me, obviously I don't have a real like an actual visual of the landscape, but just you know sort of thinking about it like but there there is a rough grouse right there behind your house, and I mean that yeah, that doesn't happen by accident per se, but you know it's there for a reason, but how long will that persist yeah, is the question.
1: Well and and again it goes back to you know a, it's a really unique spot that I live in yeah. um in the fact that that landscape was going to be I don't we I think we talked about it was going to be a, a reservoir so the the mm, government came yes. in and eminent domained all the land and and got all this 70,000 acres and then local residents basically fought the government tooth and nail and got it stopped. They were you know the Delaware River is one of if not the only undammed River in the East Coast, hmm. and they, you know, so it's free flowing for its its length. um I think there's a couple short, head, like the, I forget what they call them, short head dams, or like the really the really small ones. Okay. But in terms of it being, you know, there's no no reservoirs on it, and they basically overturned this decision, and now we have this wonderful national recreation area, which is pretty yeah. pretty amazing. And the fact that there's ag on it, you know, those fields keep edge habitat there. I mean, they're still, you know, they're farming, but there's still hedgerows and edge habitat, and a lot of that that was farm field that people got you know their pr- property got purchased it's all regenerating and you know you have a lot of su- early successional growth there and um it's one of the last strongholds of that that stuff in in the state for sure
0: yeah very so, cool well something else that you mentioned you've been doing this spring is going to estate sales and just cleaning up on firearms <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: i i always have my eyes out and um you know i'm always looking for uh, the next There's a, there's a really cool painting. I don't know. It's probably silly, but anyway, there's always, there's this painting of, uh, uh, that it's Donald duck and he's got like a pickaxe and all this stuff. And he's like out there exploring. And there's the, the quote on the bottom is there's always another rainbow. And it's like, if you, if you're always looking for the next rainbow, there's always something to be found. Sure. And that's kind of the way I take my, my gun searching is I, I never feel like, you know, just cause something works or doesn't work. Doesn't mean that there's not the next one to chase as I (laughs) continue along. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I was able to pick up a few different, um, a few different guns recently that, you know, sub gauge, sub gauge side-by-sides, which I mean, that's kind of a cool thing. Nice finds. Yeah. 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 So I picked up, um, I picked up three twenty gauge side-by-sides and a 16 gauge side-by-side alongside of some other stuff that was uh, ancillary to it. But when, when the deal is right, you kind of, make moves on it. And, and, uh, so that was, you know, a, they all...
0: that was a single estate sale that had a, a bunch. Well, of so,
1: so technically, so New Jersey's rules are a little bit different than other states. So it actually, it, I wasn't dealing with the estate directly. So okay. the estate went to a, a shop and mm. they had, you know, they got a bunch of guns came in over the course of time. And, um, this is why it's really good to know your local, uh, gun store owners is I got a phone call. Hey, you, uh, you should probably come down and take a look at what's going on. We got a bunch of stuff in that you might be interested in. And, um, that was, you know, I went down and looked at the rack and kind of picked out the things that I thought were, were the most interesting. Nice, But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to, it's good to keep your eyes open because that kind of stuff happens. I mean, that's what we all kind of dream of. I haven't had, I haven't gotten anything new in for, for quite some time. And it was like, all of a sudden here they all were, yeah. and, you know? Um, but I got, so I got, uh, two Fox bees. Um, one of okay, each. The fox there's Model a couple B. different. Yep. Yeah, Fox Model B. So not your AH Fox, but your your you know they're the Fox B's. Um, made by Savage
0: after the Fox Sterlingworth and after the a yeah fox U- after the
1: Utica yes. guns. it was the okay. next one on. Okay. But yep. um, there was a number of different versions of that of the Fox B. But I there's, it's it's 20 gauges, but they're two different versions really? of Fox B. One one has the little fox on the bottom you know the fox engraving and the other one has uh ducks it's either ducks or geese on the bottom but i think it's waterfowl of some kind on the bottom so i got one of each of those which was kind of neat and then um the other one was a it's a essentially a 311 a savage but it's uh which you already had one of those right yeah yes i've had a couple that's kind of a little
0: pet favorite of yours
1: oh my goodness (laughs) Uh, they're um yeah, they're they're like a tank. They're heavy and yeah. and kind of bulky, but boy, my gosh, you can shoot a lot of stuff with them if you really want to. Yeah. Um, you know, I that was the that was the gun that I gifted to my buddy in Alaska and then oh, okay. I picked up a, I picked up yet another one before this one. <laughs> but this is actually a I don't I think it was like a 520. So the mo- there's so many different models okay. in there that um but in in inner workings they're more or less the same if you pull them apart you can if you can pull one apart you can pull any any of the versions
0: how much similarity are there between the and also what era the 311s versus the fox model b's are those different era guns
1: about the, about the same. They're they're all about the same. Yeah, you're talking um, that period of post World War II mm-hmm. for for the ones that I that I have, they're all about the same vintage. So you're talking fifty sixties ish yep. type guns. Um, and part of the reason I kind of gravitated towards them was that they had some good condition. Although they all have like they all have something wrong. Like, sure, uh, there's a a little bit of rust or. You know, the top lever catch isn't catching on one of the bees. You know, mm. so like you press the top lever over and it should stick. It doesn't. It swings back the other. So they're all they all need work, which is what I love anyway, is tinkering <laughs> with tinkering with guns in the basement. Yeah. So but um the condition on most of them was pretty solid. Um and that's that's the fun part is when you find something that has some original case color on it, the yep. bluing's not really that worn, the stocks are pretty honest, you know, people haven't really done too much. I mean, you know, all little things like one has a crusty old orange pad on it. That's just sat for so long that it's like a, you know, it's like a rock. It turned from rubber to plastic. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, they'll all get, I'll run through them all and, you know, do some work with them and um, make some videos hopefully with them and kind of, uh, you know, do some different things with them here in the basement, in the
0: shop. And um,
1: yeah, it's, it'll be, it'll be good. It's always fun to have a project or two.
0: So are those are the bottle bees, are they like 26 inch kind of mod full type deals or?
1: Uh, yeah, it's actually really funny. Um, one is your standard, uh, IC mod. Okay. But, uh, one of them is like a skeet, skeet. IC. somebody uh, open up the chokes, mm, okay. uh, which for a bird hunter, that's not necessarily a problem, especially if right. you shoot grouse and woodcock. Yep. Um, you know, you don't necessarily need to have, um, the super tight chokes. Um, the, I think this, the, the, 311 the 520 whatever that that one also had pretty open chokes but it had short barrels um let's see if i'm looking at it right now sorry a 530a is the model i got my models confused but this one has the the 530 has 26 inch tubes which i you know if you're a brush guy and i know, short you short like 26 tubes, inch barrels yeah yeah i mean i don't <laughs> i there's a lot of guys out there that would hate on me for the fact that i love 26s and i love <laughs> You know, give me a 26 inch gun that's been cut off. Like it was 30, <laughs> somebody whacked it. Now it's like cylinder and cylinder and 26 inches. And we you know, you got a bird gun right there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, a couple of them had nice, you know, like I said, they had been adjusted, uh, for somebody who clearly was shooting birds with them. Cause you know, especially when you, at least when I look at an old side by side like that, if I find one that somebody's done work to, especially if they've opened up the chokes or, you know, reshape the forehand or, or kind of some of the fun stuff. I always like to dream about what it was they were chasing. Mm. And in the Northeast here, the benefit for me is they probably were chasing partridge. They were probably chasing woodcock, Yeah. you know, back in the fifties and sixties, which is cool. I mean, that's, yeah. there's some history to those guns, which is fun. Um, you know, that was, I like to dream about what, what they've seen over the years before they came to
0: me. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I think, I mean, that gets brought up a lot with vintage guns, but the the whole sort of idea, idea of the estate sale, you know, there's there's like some yeah. romance in there. Like, oh, what, what yep. might you find? I Actually, I just was, before we started recording, I had to bring my car up to get service. I was dropping it off and I saw a billboard for, this is a really random story, but I saw a billboard for the Duluth Junk Hunt. And it's like, this big, like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, they're totally, I'm into it. Yeah. 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 I, and like, I think I'm going to be turkey hunting, but I'm like, man. And, and the first thought that came to my mind was, you know, if I had time to run down there, I always think like, what, what sort of upland bird paraphernalia might I find there? You know, In yep. some old decanters or glasses or paintings or, and there probably will be something down there. I, I, I would love to be able to get there, but I, I love doing that kind of stuff. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop Podcast, Mike Naduski, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many Upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the Upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next Upland hunting shotgun with Upland gun company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. Yeah.
1: Well, for all the guys who's, whose wives like to go antiquing, there's always solace. <laughs> if you can, if you, you know, if, you, if you have a good eye for that, you can kind of bite the bullet and go antiquing and keep your eyes open for old grouse pictures. <laughs> yes. or old, Like I said, old cups or yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, boy, it's like a, you can't shake it if you, if you're a upland mm-hmm. guy, you can't, yeah. you don't ever, you don't ever shake that off.
0: You see, see the world through those <laughs> eyes and you,
1: you find that stuff wherever you go. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, my, my, uh, the walls of my house are
0: covered with stuff from antique shops. <laughs> so speaking of upland bird paraphernalia, I, I know you and I kind of chatted at length about this, but I think we should, we should mention it and people can check this out, but you recently got back a mount rough grouse dead mount that was just absolutely stunning as done by a by a taxidermist that's known for doing that kind of stuff tell me a little bit about that yeah yeah
1: so it that piece actually is particularly special to me the last season that the the last year the grouse season was open in new jersey i actually did kill um, a couple grouse in new jersey and save them with the very clear intent that I was going to get yeah. something done taxidermy wise. Let me
0: jump in here one sec. When it was the last season, did you know it was going to be the last? Like, did they no. say okay? So they no. canceled it afterwards. All right,
1: gotcha. Yeah, it was like um, I just you just see the writing on the wall. <laughs> sure, and sure. I mean total luck too. Like, you know, I can't. I'm not some savant. I I just for whatever reason that year I put it in the back of my head. I said, look, I haven't shot a grouse in New Jersey in a while. Got it. And you know, I was like, I'm gonna search areas that i wouldn't otherwise hunt particularly because in some parts of new jersey especially the parts that i hunt the grouse are not necessarily where the woodcock are going to be and i had you know i've got my woodcock covers and they're those are focused on these days on swamps they're uh along the river corridors swampy areas beaver beaver affected areas like I mean, it's not rocket science, right? Beavers cut down a bunch of trees. (laughs) You got some successional habitat, woodcock come in there. And, um, so, but those areas that are wet like that, that are good for woodcock are not necessarily going to draw the grouse in the same way. So I actually made a special effort to try to find some places that were the different kind of habitat that grouse would possibly frequent, you know, with the idea that I wasn't even going to see one. Mm -hmm. And, um, that last season, I did manage to shoot a couple grouse. Uh, I related a story to, Uh, about the, there was a little bit of snow on the ground. Um, and it was the latter part of what little season we had. And I actually, uh, took the bell off my setter, uh, to try to be as quiet as possible in the woods (laughs) and, um, was able to shoot a couple of grass. They were in cedars mixed with bittersweet. They were up in the trees and the vines eating, eating the berries and keeping themselves, keeping their feet dry so that they weren't down in the snow. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty incredible hunt. Actually, the second part of the hunt, I, I went and I knew where there were some spring seeps where there was open ground where like this, you know, cause it was a little bit of snow on the ground, but there was these seeps where the ground was, there was not snow covered. And obviously they were just loaded with woodcock cause it was right at the right time of year that the migration was happening. Um, so I ended up getting a limited grouse, limited woodcock on, on a particular day. And, um, that kind of motivated this idea in my head. I was going to get a com- combined amount of grouse and woodcock together. In Hanging Dead, uh Hanging Dead version. And um anyway, I sent my my taxidermist, uh, and I I gotta give him full credit. So um it's Wildfowl Unlimited out of uh, Florence, Montana, Eugene Strikstra. He is amazing. Um amazing taxidermist. Clearly. I sent him a bunch of birds and I said, Eugene, I, I gotta I got to get a mount done. These are very special to me. I want to do a hanging dead composition piece. You know, I want to do grouse. I want to do woodcock. And he, you know, kind of came at me and said, well, how many And this and that we talked about it a little bit. And the last thing I said to him was do it how you would do it because your stuff is so good. If it looks good to you, it's going to look good to me. Yeah. And, um, we settled on three grouse hanging and a woodcock laid out and he made a barnwood frame for it. Yeah. Um, and it just turned out incredible i mean the what what he can do it it looks like i mean it looks like a piece of art right it looks like yep it's a it's and it i guarantee and you know i guarantee that he was looking at somebody's painting of what that should look like and and it turned out just like a painting i mean that's it's everything i wanted it to be in more so
0: yeah
1: um it's just fun i i'm a a self-admitted taxidermy hound. Like I, (laughs) my house looks like the national history museum, (laughs) but, um, you know, I try to explain to people when I walk down the stairs, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I walk down the stairs and I look at the stuff on the wall. Yeah. There's dead animals on the wall. Like I get it. But if you're the person who's been there and done it and pursued it and knows the effort and time and energy and Mm -hmm. expense and the heartbreak and all the things that go into it and the dogs and the people that you've hunted with it, when I walk down my stairs, when I look at the stuff on the wall, it's like, sometimes it's hard to just walk by. It's like that. You think about the hunts that you went yeah. on and the people that were involved. Um, it's just a cool thing. It's yeah. A cool I thing. would
0: say so, that's, that's, I mean, that's really what sh- should be one of the purposes of taxidermy. I, myself, I don't, other than deer antlers and stuff, like I got, I put some fans, you can see them up there. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I've always had an appreciation for texture. I mean, like we were talking about, you know, you kind of look for upland bird stuff wherever you go. Like if I walked into a bar or something when I was younger and I saw a grouse on the wall, you know, my eyes lit up. Yeah. You know that kind of thing. So, I, I mean, I I still say like I'm always saying like I'll oh, I'll get it at some point. So I I probably will, but I just haven't I haven't made the effort to go get anything mounted and. There's a couple birds, one in particular that I regret not mounting. I have the tail fan of a, Mm -hmm. of a nice rough grouse that I shot over my dog Hartley. And, um, but I, I did want to say like, there's something about dead mounts that are just, they're so stunning and I mean, Mm -hmm. I like live mounts too, but something about that and that one in particular, yeah, it caught my attention and a lot of people's for that matter. It's just high quality work, but Mm -hmm. super cool when that comes together. I mean, what a, what a memory that is. Yeah. You know, I, I think,
1: I, I don't know. I, it's just different in the fact that it is a hanging dead mount, but I, I mean, we've all seen the, the paintings and stuff mm-hmm. that, that people have done of the, of those, you know, of a game, you know, Very a similar, game carrier. Yeah. yeah and that, it just, I think that's why it's so cool is because it's that come to life. Yeah. Right? And, which is which is unique. So, thank you, Eugene, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, well, yeah, years
0: years ago, I got into a a very brief um, like Facebook messaging exchange with Eugene. Not really. I didn't know like I guess I just knew that he was a taxidermist, and I was we were kind of going back and forth about getting him on the show, and it never came together. But. I don't think I saw his name again until I saw that mount of yours. And then the light bulb went off my head. I'm like, Oh, wow. That's him. Oh, yeah. I should have interviewed him.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately I'm never going to be able to get a bird done because people are going to start going to him because this stuff's <laughs> yeah. so darn good. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. He's had to, uh, I mean, he's had to take breaks and stuff. Cause he's got a backlog of it, of mm. stuff to do, you know, for, I mean, I, I can't, like I said, it's been, two or three years since the season closed yeah. and I got them when the season was open. So, you know, it was, it's been a long turnaround, sure. but um, worth every minute for
0: right. sure. <laughs> so I, I have this vague memory of, I was walking into Petco to pick up a bag of dog food, like last fall or would have been maybe, maybe last summer. And I was listening okay. to you on a podcast. I don't remember if it was the Gunroom podcast or something else, but you were talking about how you were planning to, to go out and do a, uh, was it a Montana or a Wyoming hunt last year? Oh yeah. Yeah. Did you um, do that? Did you go on that? Yes, hunt? <laughs> that's that's yeah. my roundabout way of asking you, how was that hunt?
1: <laughs> it was. Yeah. So, um, man, uh, so Montana is fickle, right? So I've heard, I talked to a lot of people who are out there and there was a lot of droughty conditions yes. and yep. a lot of tough stuff for birds out there. Yep. Um, which was completely not what I, what I encountered when I was out in Montana. So let's see two years ago, two years ago, I went out and had a, had a hunt. It was, it was good. My, my brother-in-law, Dimitri came, we met up and, um, you know, he flew into Minot and we met out there in, in in Montana. It was great. But this past season I got to do my first, um, which is, you know, departure from my usual, but, and, you know, I'll fully admit it was my first big game animal that I killed. Um, I had a friend who, uh, his hunt got canceled the year before, but he invited me out to go pronghorn antelope hunting. Um, so, uh, we went on a reservation in Montana, um, near the Malta area and they, you know, you get res tags and went with a guide and shot a, a really nice antelope with, uh, with a Weatherby mark five. It was an awesome hunt. Um, just a cool experience. And again, the first you know, I've shot whitetails and stuff here. Um, but kind of the first trip that I did where I had like a a trip intending to go shoot, um, to shoot big game. But before we did the, the pronghorn part of the hunt, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Ernie and I spent some time in Montana, um, chasing birds and we had, it was hot. I mean, hot with several teas, um, early September, Oh my God. Yeah. Beginning of the season. Um, Beginning of the season. It was, it was very hot, but we, um, we found birds. We had a, we had a really, really nice time. Actually, um, bird numbers were decent. Um, the thing that we found that I was surprised of that I I wasn't aware of, but I don't know if the Huns work on a cycle like grouse do, but I saw more Huns last year than I've, than any other previous trip that I've gone on in the last 20. Um, and it was it was just downright impressive. And I mean, that's great, great wing shooting coveys of huns, you know, you can chase down a couple singles and then find And it, and it wasn't like, Oh, that's the one covey we're going to find for the day. Um, you know, just driving around, we were busting him off the road and stuff, uh, which was, which was really neat. Uh, so that was, that was a lot of fun. I actually was, uh, got to shoot the, uh, that was the first season I brought the, uh, project upland. 28 gauge side by side. Oh, side, side by side. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So okay. that I
1: actually had that on the hunt. Um, and, um, we got a little footage with that, which was really fun. Um, some, some, some birds, you know, bird footage with that, which I was remember cool. seeing,
0: and, seeing that a video, I think of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I put up a, there's actually a video that I put up of me shooting a couple sharp tails, um, with like a church in the background. It was like a beautiful morning. <laughs> like, the, like that was like the coolest of the days because I'm actually wearing a shirt, like yeah. a long sleeve shirt. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, we just, we couldn't hunt past about noon. I mean, the dogs were, there was a couple of times where I was just like, we got to stop. The dogs are going to, you know, the dog, the dogs would go until they dropped, Till they dropped. It would be a problem. So, um, yeah, we had to, you know, we only had mornings to hunt, but we capitalized on the mornings as best we could and had a really, really nice time out, out there. So we'll see. I would, you know, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do this year. I had a really good experience in Maine last year. Um, okay. spent just a brief, it was like a real, uh, run and gun. I have a friend who's in, he's an orthopedic surgeon and, uh, he, he moved from Alaska to Portland and I, we drove up, brought the wife and kids up, then dropped them at his house with his wife and kids. And then he and I just bounced and went, uh, up North by several more hours up into Maine. Yep. Um, and found some grouse up there, stayed overnight, hunted a little bit in the morning and then came back. So it was kind of like a couple hours in the evening, a couple hours in the morning. Sure. Um. But I'd love to get back. I mean, man, the forest management in terms of the cutting they're doing up there and the cover is, looks nice. And I want to explore more. I mean, we didn't, we didn't kill a ton of birds, but just to have the opportunity to hunt a bunch of grouse cover. Right. That's not, I don't know how, how, I mean, what was it? To, 20 hours to grouse, 20 some hours to grouse camp out in Minnesota. Minnesota yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or the UP is pretty close to 20. I mean, I don't right. know any of the places that I would try to go. You know, it's a long, long ride.
0: Yeah. Maine is a lot closer to you than, than anywhere out here. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, no, I had a really good, really good season last year. Actually the, uh, um, woodcock last year through New Jersey and on the East coast were, were decent. Okay. I never really found, I never really hit the, like, like a slug of birds where it was, you know, they were in heavy, but we can't, we ran into birds kind of all throughout the season. They've, they've changed the season dates so many times in terms of what, how the splits work. Cause we have a split season cause we have our North zone and our South zone for Woodcock and they actually split the season. Uh, there's some really good, uh, hunting for Woodcock in South Jersey along the Bay shore. Um, but that's why they have a later season is that season's usually December, like December and our, our up early season is October, November. Um, so they actually have to, you know, because we only get so many days, they split the season yep. and kind of put a gap yeah, in Yeah,
0: 45-day f- federally regulated season, I believe. Yeah, yep. So they they split you know, it. The states um, can choose how they want mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. that, to implement hmm And that's just, it. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it's it's fair to kind of split it that way because they're, the, New Jersey's clim- climate-wise is different enough north to south mm-hmm. that those birds will come through where I am up in the north part and then they'll hang up on the Delaware Bay shore and they'll, they'll be there for a while. Um, so they're there for a lot of that middle part where there's no hunting. And then the season opens up and there's good bird numbers there. And it, it, can, be a, yeah. it can be a good time to, to go down to the South Jersey and totally different cover types too. You know, you're hunting green briar and Holly and, um, a lot of evergreen type trees and just different, just a totally different feel. A lot of sandy soil
0: stuff down in South Jersey. I'm curious, um, kind of like tying in our, the first part of our conversation where we were talking about new jersey and sort of like access challenges and you know high populations of of hunters and and certain wildlife but i've heard about woodcock hunting in new jersey in certain geographic locations like i feel like i could name them because like every person i talk to says it but it's like man is that hot spotting and then like yeah my, my it has to do with my question like if you go to one of those spots, I mean, are there people everywhere? Like, can you go find places to hunt where there isn't 10 other hunters? So the spots that you're talking about, which I, I will refrain from saying (laughs) the
1: name that everybody knows. (laughs) Right. Um, if you go there when the second half of the season opens up, yes, there are people everywhere. And I mean, and that's not a, that's not a condemnation of, of the fact that it's, it's well known. I mean, it's, I'm trying to think of who the placement, my, my parents have placemats like, and it's like the famous art. I forget who it is famous artist. And there's pictures of him with, a, I think it's a Brittany and a nice coat. He's shooting a woodcock in what is clearly South Jersey, like okay. Holly bushes and green, like it's clearly exactly from the, so it's been known that the woodcock migrate right. down along the East coast and they hold up at Delaware Bay and then they get pushed over when the weather comes. I mean, that's not, not anything new. Um, so yes, there, there is, it is busy there. Yeah. And if you, come from, if you're like thinking like, Oh, I'm going to come from out of state and have this great, yeah, it's Jersey. Like you got to take it with a grain of salt. Like make sure you have safety glasses, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. but that being said, there is, um, there's different pieces of ground, different land ownership. Um, sure. you know, I see you got, I see you have your Onyx hat on. I mean, that's kind of your best bet, your best, um, in terms of finding, spots. I mean, my goodness, it's a patchwork. It's a real patchwork and you're hunting small covers and you have to be very careful because there's, you know, there's covers that might be good, but you just can't, you know, you can't just go anywhere. You have to really take a look at those overheads and the maps. Like there could be a
0: house right there or something. Right on the other side.
1: I mean, that's, you know, that's, we've lost, I've lost, you know, I've lost a lot of covers because of that. But, um, They do. I mean, it's all along the Delaware Bay shore. I mean, not just on the very extreme tip of New Jersey, there's, there's covers that, that hold birds throughout the year. Um, you know, but again, it's, you know, it depends on the weather. Cause you could have the right weather event that that holds the woodcock there, or you could have the wrong one and they could be across the Bay shore into, you know, Delaware and Maryland. And you could, you know, there might not be a single bird. Like I've gone, you know, I've driven from where I am to South Jersey, which is three hours and not shot a single bird Mm. because the weather was wrong. They were just gone. They just, you know, whatever was there bopped over the, the Delaware Bay because of a cold weather event. And there's literally, you know, there's chalk marks everywhere. The dogs are pointing chalk, but there's not a single bird to be found. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah.
0: Let's transition a little bit and talk. You mentioned earlier about videos and YouTube and, and we did mm. mention the Gunroom podcast and, and, yeah. uh, I will have likely previewed this in the intro to the episode, but we are going to, we're going to finish up our part of the conversation here. And then we're going to transition to the gun room podcast. And folks can kind of hear the end of this interview on Joel's podcast. You are host of the gun room podcast. It launched, when did it launch 2020, uh, last year. So
1: technically, um, we did about 30 some episodes okay. last year. So 2021, um, early 2021, we started and, um, Kind of a different little bit of a different format because I'm not doing only interviews. I do like try to usually do an interview in the topic and kind of jump back and forth. But, um, yeah, really fun, uh, topics, but focused on classic and vintage shotguns and rifles. Um, but so the good news is we are, uh, back at it and full steam ahead. Um, so the first, um, i don't know when when exactly this is gonna go live, but yeah, the first I don't know of yet our, either, so
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: well, the first of our episodes are going live very shortly, and um, I have been recording um and have a number of episodes kind of rolling and ready to go, uh, some really good conversations with again, focusing primarily people inside the industry, uh you know gunsmiths and fine firearms collectors, and um, just a really good kind of subset, but really primarily focusing on the firearms, right? So we're talking about the shotguns, the rifles, the things that we take into the, into the field for sport. And, um, you know, the, the new re-release of it is, is, you know, we've got, uh, the new websites going up. We've got a new Patreon going up. We've got a Facebook account and all this stuff, but the other side of it that is completely new this year is, um, we're going to try and put some video content out. Um, so, a lot of what I talk about on the show and a lot of what I think is really interesting to a lot of folks is just what I do in the basement as a hobby is taking guns and fixing them up. Like I told you earlier, I, you know, picked up a number of, of guns and they don't scare me that there's issues with each and every one of them because, you know, I've spent enough time tinkering and playing around and I've seen some tips and tricks and I've talked to a lot of professionals who do it a lot better than I do. Um, but in terms of being able to, um, struggle through and, and work on different things. Uh, so anyway, we're going to try and put out some video content that has a lot of those, um, tips, tricks, information, tools, um, just the things that you would need if you wanted to say, have an old Fox B and really clean it. And I don't mean just take the barrels off the action and, you what know, do you mean, put a fu- I already
0: know how to run a boar, boar snake through it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say a fuzzy stick. Yeah, run the fuzzy stick up and, you know, through the barrels a couple of times and then put it back together. I'm talking about <laughs> taking the gun that's been in the back of the, you know, the the boot closet and, you know, that's been in the back of the boot closet for 50 years and taking it apart, degreasing it, you know, talking about wire wheeling and um, really putting the screws to it and and getting that gun back to a point where it's really, you know, you're, you're adding years to the life of that firearm. Right. So it was maybe neglected, maybe set aside, maybe forgotten about. And that just, you know, at least for me, it thrills me the idea of being able to take these guns that clearly were in somebody's collection and he cared about them. And, you know, the gentleman, you know, I don't know that, I don't know the story, but the assumption is that he passed away and his collection is now moving on to other hands. And I, Especially when you talk about really expensive firearms, a lot of the guys that I talk to that are collectors, they have a different view of it. And it's about being a steward, right? So the firearms are going to outlive us. They're going to outlive you and me for sure. Most of them, unless there's some catastrophic event, right? They're going to go to our kids or to our relatives, kids or what, what have you. Um, And the idea is that this gentleman had a massive collection of firearms that he was taking care of. And now it's my turn to take care of them. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to do what I can up to the extent of my ability to either bring them back or give them more years by keeping them clean or by by fixing them or, you know, taking something that, you know, there's a crack in the stock. And if somebody who doesn't know just gets that and shoots it, they may break that stock. They may, you know, damage that firearm beyond repair. And then the next guy's not going to want to put the time and effort in to fix it. Well, I can take it right now. <clears throat> you know, epoxy that crack, fix it up, put it back together and hopefully save it from the graveyard. Right. Yeah. You know, to keep these guns yeah. going and, you know, act as a, as a good steward to it, because, um, a lot of the stuff, like I said, doesn't, it's going to outlive us. So it's kind of fun. Even, even like the less expensive stuff, like we've been talking about, like the Fox bees and the savage Three Elevens, And, you know, there's a, there was an ethical of fever, like just cool guns that, you know, have history that people have carried and used and, um, they don't really deserve to be just relegated to the junk heap quite yet.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, a- as folks will have picked up on by now, the getting near the end of your second appearance on the birdshot podcast, you're definitely in, you're an upland bird hunter and you're a, you <clears throat> you're a passionate bird hunter, but you are a, a bit of a gun nut and that, that sort the touch, of yeah. embodies the, the gun room podcast. And while you know bird hunting shotguns and and such are are a topic of conversation on the gunner podcast it goes beyond that as you as you mentioned you know you're talking you did a cool one of the first ones that you put out was the little the topic where it's more of you kind of like it's almost like you've written an article and you're just sort of reading it like audiobook format mm-hmm. on the 1022 and and just yep. kind of give people like a history or a rundown of certain topics that you're interested in and um definitely a a neat like different flavor and feel to, to the podcast, in that extent, but then you've had interviews obviously with, you know, guys from auction houses and, and other hunters or gun companies and stuff are, through mm-hmm. the first 30 that you put out last year, are there an episode or two not asking you to like pick your favorite ones? Cause that's always hard to do, but like, are there a couple yeah. that stand out that, that you got a lot of good feedback on, or that you would tell somebody listening on the bird shot? Oh yeah. Definitely go check out this one or two. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, the, uh, like you said, if you have any interest in the, the shorts, um, yep. you know, I call them essentially, I call them 10 minutes on. So I like the 10 minutes on the ten twenty two, or, um, I did them on, you know, foxes and Parker's and Remington yep. 700s and stuff. If you own one of those guns and you want to know a little bit more about them, yeah. um, those little 10 minutes on is kind of like your little talking points about why that thing that you own is unique and cool and what the history is. So um, if you own any of those guns and you see one on there that they're a really great place to start just for some information. But as far as the interviews uh, that I've done, I mean, I, it's really hard to pick out some, you know, the really hard to pick out one or two, but man, there's, I really enjoyed speaking with the guys from the custom gun makers guild. I don't remember. I'd have to look back and actually pick out what number it was. Yeah, it was yeah. earlier on, um, when I was at the Southern side-by-side, but I, I sat down with, um, uh, Glenn Fulis and, uh, Steve Duran of the custom Gunmakers guild. And, the, you know, we talked about a lot of different stuff, but, um, those guys are just so knowledgeable and it just, you know, you think about a qualified gunsmith working on guns. These guys are not just qualified gunsmiths. They're the next level. Like I'm, I'm not even a gunsmith, right? I, I work on guns in my basement and they're, if I damage it, it's on me, it's my gun anyway. And I can, <laughs> you know, I can, I can live with that. Um, I'm not even, professing that I can work on anybody else's guns, let alone the level that they're at in terms of the artistry that they have. And, and, um, one of my favorite quotes of all time that I, that I had was, I forget if it was which, which of the two gentlemen said it, but, um, that it's, it's art and art needs patrons and the people that, you know, that buy their stuff and that follow them in terms of what they do. They're, they're really patrons of the arts because these guys take it from function and form up to the, to the next level of just being straight art. So that, that's a really cool one. If you're into, you want to talk about a little bit more philosophy of gunsmithing and gun collecting and stuff like that. But I got, you know, the new, I got some new shows coming out. I mean, I talked to Brian Dudley, BMD gun stocks. I talked to Diggory Haydock of, um, he's a vintage guns in the UK. Okay. Um, And uh, I actually just spoke with Doug Turnbull from Turnbull restoration. Um, So some really cool, (laughs) like just really cool conversations. If you're into, classic shotguns or rifles um you know these are the guys that have made it their vocation i mean if that's yeah. that's yep. the really cool part about it is and the, the knowledge i mean and that's what i envy is just the level of knowledge that most of these guys have and it may not be in every area right they, but sure man oh man yeah. you talk about really diving into some of the intricacies of detail um you know uh, some of the guys from parker collectors association lc smith collectors Association, these guys are you know, the depth of knowledge that they possess about something is incredible. And that's, that's always been the goal of the gun room, right. Is to try to, the whole idea kind of stem from the, from trying to tell the story of it and try to curate this for the, for the future, because these guys don't necessarily have a place to share all this, Mm -hmm. but my goodness, do they have, do they have knowledge and stories and things to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's. That's the gun room video content. We talk, Oh yeah. So video content, I kind of got off, off track there, but my goal is to try to put out some of some video content that is surrounding some of these guns that I buy for myself that I'm trying to fix up. I'm just going to put out some videos of me, you know, disassembly videos, tricks and tips. <clears throat> um, you know, there's some special tools. Like I had to make a tool to compress the mainsprings on, uh, these Ithaca LaFever guns. Yeah. I was working on a 12 gauge one that I have, And, uh, there's a special clamp tool that you need to depress that spring and you got to make it. And that's, that's just the way it goes. Um, so I I have some stuff like that that's coming out that should be coming up this year, probably around summertime. That's going to really start to kind of link in, but, um, that'll be a really good resource. The goal is to, excuse me, the goal is to have a resource for people to come and look and see, you know, how do I take this apart? How do I put it back together? If I've taken it apart and I can't figure out how to put it back together or, you know, those are the things that people need to know. And again, I'm trying to make sure that guys like me are good stewards of the firearms, right? And we don't want, um, we don't want people going off and doing things that are unsafe or dangerous or damaging to the guns. Right. So hopefully I can do my part to kind of share some of that knowledge and keep the level of, if you're going to pull something apart in the basement, keep <laughs> that level of knowledge high. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So,
0: something that I am, uh, I am not bold enough to do. Uh, although I will be doing some, very, very basic. Uh, I don't even know if you could call it gunsmithing work, but some gun modifications, which we are going to maybe talk about on part two of this interview or over on yeah. your show. But yeah, I will say that again, you know, we talk a fair bit of shotguns on this show and we have some fun with it and we've talked vintage guns and stuff, but for kind of taking that to the next level. The Gun Room is a, is a place where I've enjoyed many interviews so far. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, round two for you, season two, whatever you want to call it. But coming back yeah. and and we'll check out the videos. Uh, looking forward to it. So Gun Room Podcast, you can find that just about anywhere. YouTube, search The Gun Room. Yep. Yep. Gunroompodcast.com. Okay. You know, it's all the same. Gun Room Podcast is, is, is what you want to yep. search. Okay. Yep. Got it. If I were to ask you, Joel what your favorite bird hunting gun is right now. Could you even tell me (laughs) (laughs) you got somebody to choose from? Yes. I, well, so the favorite one you said
1: right now, so yes,
0: that's, and that's what Um, I mean right now. Yep.
1: Uh, yeah, I picked up a 16 gauge Parker Damascus. That's a GH, um, that I hunted with one frame or zero frame, um, zero frame.
0: Mm. So The, um, the mythical zero frame Parker, yeah
1: um I actually have a trojan uh sixteen gauge that's the the larger frame is the zero or the one the no, i'm not gonna
0: zero is the small frame. the old frame o frame, the o frame the, i think you another the... way to say it is that that's technically the twenty gauge frame is the o frame yeah they so made some 16 i have gauge the on that
1: I have the sixteen gauge on the the one frame okay. is the the trojan. And I, I was using that for my, like Bert, my prairie gun It has tighter chokes and is was a great gun for, uh, Montana. I shot a ton of birds with that gun in Montana, came home, bought this Damascus one. Somebody made me a deal. They just knew, um, they just knew what I wanted and they cheated me and hoodwinked me and totally, uh, twisted my arm and made me buy this, uh, 16 gauge Damascus gun. But my, oh my, is it, <laughs> um, a pleasure. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure to shoot and really fun, uh, really beautiful gun to have. So that one right now, and that's a, that's blasphemy for me because I'm a Fox guy, but, (laughs) but yeah, I, I didn't pick up the Foxes very much last season because I
0: had this new Parker to play with. Well, that is a, that is a worthy candidate. I've seen a few Damascus Parkers up close and not a one has been disappointing. That's for sure. And I will say I am, I am far from a, an expert on the Parkers and stuff, but the O frame or zero frame Parker, whatever you want to call it. I think it's essentially the 20 gauge frame, but they, when you pick up one of those in 16 gauge on a zero frame, it's like, I wouldn't be surprised if this is where a lot of the love for the, the, the vintage 16 comes from, because it's, you kind of don't believe you're holding a 16 gauge. Like it's just a, such a, a dainty, sleek little gun, at least the ones mm-hmm. that, I, that I have picked up. I mean, that's uh if you haven't had your hands on one, do yourself a favor and, Go find an all-frame parker somewhere. It'd probably be pretty pricey, but yeah. <laughs> at yeah. least go pick it up and handle it.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah, no doubt. Um Cool, cool stuff though, for sure. Good, always good to have. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's my my problem. It goes back to that always. There's a, there's always another rainbow. Yes. I'm sure there will be. I'm sure that this will not be the last gun that I just had to have. So
0: <clears throat> that I believe no. for for a fact. <laughs> anything, anything. Th- this will be the last one. But anything on your calendar already for this fall, as far as upland hunts go, or not nothing yet
1: uh well in the perfect world where i don't have obligations or a family uh which which one do you want to hear about I, that, wouldn't would, be, that
0: wouldn't be a perfect world joel
1: <laughs> i am uh uh if my wife is listening i love you honey um <laughs> No, I'm looking at possibly Montana okay. in September and Michigan, or I'm sorry, Montana in September and Maine in October. Gotcha. And actually the, the one I did book, which I'm super excited about, cause I've never shot wild quail of any kind. Um, I'll be in, um, Arizona in January. Oh, lucky you. So yeah, we, that was uh good, you know, good friend of mine, uh, earned the same guy I went to Montana with for the pronghorn thing. Um, he was said oh yeah we got i got a guy he's a guide, that uh, you know guide and i'd love for you to come and um so we're you know we're gonna fly fly out uh in january and do a couple days and that'll be
0: the first wild quail i'll chase so that'll be a lot of fun awesome man definitely something to look forward to and with that we're gonna wrap up part one on the birdshot podcast if folks are interested they want to hear this conversation continue a little bit head over to The Gun Room Podcast, but do so anyways beyond uh, my conversation with Joel over there. There's all kinds of other stuff that I think you'll find interesting. So, Joel, thanks for joining us once again on the Birdshot Podcast. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, and share, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.